you're a real Clevelander, you hate the Yankees. You don't really need explanation. There's something there in that rivalry. It's so historical and deep-seated. When the Yankees came into Cleveland, the intensity meter was, was on another level. They were the haves, and we were always the have-nots. We embraced that underdog thing to the max. And it all started with one pitch. I heard from so many fans, where's the Ray Chapman plaque? The Indians and the Yankees were locked in a tight pennant race when Ray Chapman was tragically struck down. And by 1916, he was regarded as one of the best shortstops in the game. He's the only player to die from an on-field injury. Yeah, two franchises been around for a long, long time. Both of them ready to rip each other apart. Cleveland just wants success at any level. A Clevelander bought a team in New York. All of a sudden, Cleveland was our biggest competition. I think it was a rivalry that, that never stopped. I didn't have any feeling of guilt whatsoever. I didn't hit Chapman. Chapman hit himself. problem is the Yankees don't see us as much of a rivalry as the Indians see the Yankees, and that, that makes me hate the Yankees even more. Joining me now, an award-winning producer for ESPN's much-acclaimed 30 for 30 docuseries. He's earned two Sports Emmy Awards, one Peabody Award, and an NAACP Award, uh, and he's the director of Believe Land. He's now got a new documentary coming out about Ray Chapman and the 100-year rivalry between the Cleveland Indians and New York Yankees. Uh, give it up for Andy Billman. Thank you so much for joining uh, me. Uh, before we start, Cleveland is a Chicago sports fan. Not a whole lot of sympathy for Cleveland. And that, that film even had me emotional. I thought you did a wonderful job with that. Uh, I saw the trailer for the new one, got really excited, just watched it this morning. And uh, once again, you hit it out of the park. So we'll start with this. I mean, what gave you the idea for a, a film about Ray Chapman? Like, when was the first time you heard about him and what kind of inspired uh, this film? Well, that was quite a lead on. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, we come in peace, Cleveland, Chicago. We come in peace. That's like, you know, it's an intense White Sox Guardians game. Uh, look, or, or Bulls Cavs. Um, the whole reason why I did this film is when I did Believe Land, I learned a lot about the Chapman story. I also learned a lot about George Steinbrenner wanted to buy the team, the Indians in the early 70s. So when I got pitched to do the film on the book, The Pitch to Kill, which is a story that was a wonderful written book by Mike Soul, talking in the details about what happened with Ray Chapman, who's the Indian star player in 1920, who was hit by a pitch and killed by uh, by Yankees pitcher Carl Mays. And I, I kind of pitched him back and said, I would like to do the story of what it was like uh, for the Indians and Yankees of rivalry. So that's what I see here. Because there's a lot of moments throughout time uh, as 100 years going. And some of the moments being Fowler and DiMaggio's relationship, which actually had a very good relationship. Um, there's also the whole story with 4854. Uh, integration and segregation goes into those storylines. Nineteen In the late 1950s, uh, Herb's core star pitcher for the Indians gets hit by line driver Gil McDougal, also in Yankee game. And then into the 70s was Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner grew up as a huge Indians fan. Actually tried to buy the Cleveland Indians in a typical Cleveland fashion. Something falls apart. Uh, the, the owner of the time, Vern Strofer, had a had an axe to grind with Steinbrenner. And so Steinbrenner, two years later, says, you know what? 
I'm going to put my own group together and I'm going to buy the Yankees and set out to really, at times, really to make sure when, especially when in Cleveland, to embarrass the Indians as much as possible. So we get into those storylines, we get into the 90s storylines, 97, 98, 2007 with Bugs, and away we go. So the whole pitch here is we tell the whole story of 1920 of what happened, how the Indians end up winning the World Series that year under tragic circumstances in the hundred years of, of games and rivalries between these two teams. So when was the first time you heard kind of about Ray Chapman? I mean, being from Cleveland, because I'm a lifelong baseball fan. The first time I ever heard about him was a, a Dan Gutman uh, book. So uh, I know in like the beginning of the film, they're talking about how like the plaque that they, they didn't have it up until they found it. Is this like a well-known throughout like uh, guardians fans or Cleveland fans? Or when was the first time you uh, heard, heard about this? I think it's one of those things if you grew up as an and I grew up in the major league years when the Indians were very bad. Right. Um, people who don't know major league is not just a film. It's a documentary. What was going on in the eighties with the Indians, the Indians were terrible in the eighties. So, but what we would do as Indians fans, you would live the glory days, 48, 54, but you never talked about 20. It really never came up. And there's a lot of people who probably don't even know that Tris speaker um, was not only on the Indians, uh, he was a manager, and really, frankly, that was probably the biggest trade that ever happened in Cleveland between the, between the uh, in, in Indians. And so, no, I actually don't. I think there's been a lot of time that's passed. But I think Ray Chapman was a big storyline throughout most of the 20th century. Yes. Do I think at some point that, you know, like anything else, stories get forgotten? Yeah, I do. I think that's what naturally just happens. And, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, it just got forgotten. And to be honest, the story of losing the plaque, I think, says that. I mean, they didn't even know where it was or didn't know what, where, what happened to it. So it does happen in sports. But in fairness to the Indians and in fairness to, organiz- to people working in the organization when that plaque was misplaced, you know, the man died. It was a tragic moment. So it's, it's hard at that time as an Indians fan to think about. There's only two years they won, and one of the years a star player died in the middle of the season. It's a... It's not exactly a happy fairy tale, obviously. So no, I actually don't. And I think that's part of the reason why I did it. Is I didn't know a lot about the 1920 season outside of the main storylines, but I, I learned a lot about the 1920 Indians, and it kind of gave me some perspective. And I think, ironically, not to go too deep, that was the big year in baseball, too, because that was the end of the dead ball era where people were hitting bunts, running around bases, stealing bases. It was the birth of the big era of home runs with with um, Babe Ruth and the Yankees, and it was the end of the Black Sox scandal. The Black Sox scandal actually didn't get settled in court until the September of 1920. So it was a big transition of baseball away from that era of where you came around from outlaws like Ty Cobb and Carl Mays, honestly, going into the pizzazz and stardom. And there were stars before then, but real stardom in Babe Ruth, and it kind of just took off from that moment. One of the cool things that I loved about this documentary was the Carl Mays audio. Uh, I really thought yeah. it added something and, and just kind of like his way of talking, like his story about him on the train playing cards, bashing the guy's head against the table. I mean, it's worthwhile for the, if you haven't seen it yet, that story right there, I think is worthwhile. But where did you find that? I know how hard it is to find kind of like these B-roll and archival footage, especially when there's not a whole lot of it today. Like, what was that process way? Like when did you first find out about that footage and I guess the steps to, to get that and make it happen. Well, credit should go to Pam Sullivan. She was a producer on the project and she had been talking to the Mace family and I had actually 
found an article back done in the late 60s is Carl's going to come out with an autobiography. And it spoke about in this article in the late 60s, early 70s about Carl and these tapes. So, you know, like a director, like, okay, I have written record that he recorded himself for this autobiography. He never finished it. But there's, there's the audio recordings and the family actually had them. And it really brought to life, I think, the Carl May story. And to your point, that's cr- there were several other stories that were just crazy, um, crazy violent. Um, but I'll be fair to Carl May in one sense. That was the period. 1890s, Midwestern guy, born in Kentucky, raised in Missouri, Missouri, as he would say in his audio tapes. I mean, he grew up in a very, very different era of life where people around him died. Tragically, and, uh, and and you know, he grew up in an area where he had to fend for himself. So the one thing I'll give Carl May is he was rough and tumble, and he did some things that would never be acceptable even on Pinky's worth today. In fairness, that was more the norm at times, not every time, but at times that in that period in the early twentieth century. So, but yeah, I mean, was he part of that Ty Cobb Wild West baseball? Absolutely. Um, Carl Mays was definitely one of those players, no doubt. Was there a favorite Carl Mays story of yours that you heard that you maybe couldn't put in or didn't fit that I guess um, would be terrible? He really talked, you know what's funny is he talked fondly about Babe Ruth a lot. And because he played with Babe, obviously, in early years. He also, um, he tortured their manager. Um, they put him into like a bathroom and I get, uh, Miller Huggins. Everybody couldn't stand Miller Huggins, so they put Miller Huggins in a bathroom and they literally locked him in there until, like, he basically, like, was going to break down the door. Again, someone for people who don't know, obviously in the 20s, it was all trains. It was hot in those trains. So sticking someone in a bathroom today in a train might find annoying. In 1920, it's probably pretty hot. <laughs> so not only are you in a train, like, you're in a small condensed area, it's got to be brutal hot. So he, but yeah, there, that was interesting. I found the other thing about Carl that was very interesting to me. It wasn't much of a story, but his tone, just how hard lined he was. He did not have a problem saying, you know what? That's my plate. Chapman ran the ball and that's it. And there were several occasions he talked like that. I mean, you cover baseball. You would very rarely hear players talk like that unless they're very upset. Right. Carl talked that way. From day one, I mean, that was his plate. He ran to the pitch. Tar- Ty Cobb's an asshole. Like, those are the kind of things that kind of came out of his mouth. And he's very blunt about it. Um, so, yeah, the, but the Miller Hoggins story is my favorite, where him and Babe Ruth and a bunch of other guys like locked him in there. It's kind of funny. So, like, that incident kind of sparked this 100 year rivalry. And I found it interesting kind of how you guys put together that timeline of like cutting in and out between that story and then all these great moments throughout the rivalry's history. Uh, kind of what was the thought process behind like the unique sort of timeline you guys uh, chose for it and uh, like w- how you guys put that together? Well, I mean, when we, we have our storylines, the editor, Paul Crothers, and I sat down and we both agreed. I go, out. The, the main thread is the Chapman story, obviously. But the best story that we really laughed at was the bugs. Yeah. Um, very, very, and it is, it was as an Indians fan growing up in my late 20s, that bug game was crazy, crazy, crazy game. So that's kind of how we let off with it, and we kind of took the timeline backwards. 
And I actually, I think it kind of went full circle, but I think it explained, especially the importance of the 30s, 40s, and the 50s, of how this whole thing really continued. Um, you know, the Yankees fan, as we, as I acknowledge, and Gerard Brown acknowledged in the film, they probably don't see it as a rivalry. But for us Clevelanders, it's very different. And the way I would describe it to people is, you know, this year, Josh Naylor did a rocking the cradle moment. And baby dolls were held up in game five in the Bronx. Ironically, back in the 30s, the same thing happened to the Indians, where the Yankees um, fans and ballplayers were making fun of Bob Feller for being a crybaby, and so they all held up baby right. cry dolls back in the 30s. So I kind of smile, because I'm like, well, this is uh, almost 90, 100 years ago, and here they go. They're, it's full circle. So I, I, the thing that I want people to understand, Yankees, Red Sox, Giants, Dodgers, Cubs, Cardinals, we get it. Those are the top. Like, we're never debating who's best. What I'm saying is it's a real rivalry because of all these different moments. And to me, it all started with this pitch to kill. And then if you hold on for a second, it's going to But it also still lives today because there's technically a Bay Village, Ohio family, which is just out of Cleveland, that owns the Yankees. So, And there's a lot of people in Cleveland who actually have obviously Garden season tickets and Yankee season tickets because of the relationship with George. So there's a very tight history there. There's a lot of ties that I could have gone into about how much uh, people in Cleveland especially felt a loyalty to George because of that and because of that, they always own season tickets to both teams. And so because of that, that's why I, I will always see it as a rivalry. And in fact, I think if you talk to people, and I was talking to people locally, I, I'm based in Connecticut because I worked at ESPN for a long time. And, um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who's a respected journalist. And he goes, if you really think about it, there is a lot of history between these two teams. And what's interesting is it's not just in one era. And the Indians actually fared really well in big spots. That's the thing I like about it. The Indians do well in big spots against the Yankees. You know, I, I always – I had a play way and I kind of chuckle with the Twins. Because the Twins right. never beat the Yankees in a but they always they fold like a launcher. But the Indians will battle, or now parties will battle in big spots. And I think that's a test of to, that. That to me proves to be a rivalry. It's not Cavs Warriors, which it was a great rivalry for us, but it's really four years, and that's about it. You know, Royals Yankees is another example. Great rivalry, or, uh, late seventies, early eighties. But that's about it. Yankees Indians now Guardians is a lot fuller with a lot more years between. Yeah, that's one of the things I thought was so cool. And like you said, it's not that big, sexy one, like maybe like Dodgers and Giants or Yankees, Red Sox. But it's gone over a long span of years, and I think the film really captures that really well. And like you said, how many big moments there were. Going back to what you're talking about with George Steinbrenner, that was another thing that uh, you know I think a lot of people might not know. He's originally from Cleveland, wanted to buy the then-Indians. How different do you think that franchise's future would have been if George Steinbrenner had, in fact, bought the uh, the, the Guardian or the uh, the Indians at the time? I, I, w- I want to be very fight and very very fight. I'm sorry, very fair. Um, it would have changed a lot. <laughs> it would have changed quite a bit. In fact, I think the Indians may not be in Cleveland, and I really mean that. The reason being is because I think George would have overspent. Um, I think George would have done whatever it takes to win a World Series. Do so I think George? Would have won a World Series in the late seventies with the Indians. I do. Yes. Do I think it would have been long term success? No. There's a lot of research 
and you're involved in the game, there's a lot of things that people don't realize of how important local marketing dollars are to teams and how much it is in cable television contracts. That really played a big part in Steinbrenner still owning the team today, but that's for another story for another day. So, yes, it would have changed the Indians. Um, I don't think it would have been long-lasting. I think George would have ran out of money. I think George would have had to either sell the team or sadly move the team, which would have been terrible because I just don't think Steinberg could afford to keep the team that long in Cleveland with the money he was spent. It's not sustainable. And it's, like, I love I love baseball. It's, it's great. Baseball is not a shared revenue sport. So because of that, it's not, finished, it's not fiscally res- responsible or reasonable to say, George, go spend all this money and then keep going. I mean, my prime example would be the Jacobs. Jacobs did a wonderful job of putting money into the team in the, the mid to late 90s. They sold the team because they couldn't sustain it. It just wasn't sustainable for long periods of time. And I think that's something people need to realize. It'd be like, oh, George, we brought in all these championships. I don't know about that. <laughs> but do I think he would have won championship in Cleveland? I do. The guy was hungry to win. Guy would whatever it takes to win. I actually think too he would have made for some interesting as he did in New York, theater. Yeah. <laughs> for the press and for the media. Um, you know, just as George would have been interested. George would have, yes, it would have changed. But again, I don't think it would have been long term success. I don't see that with the Indians with George. Right. So um Going back to, to Ray Chapman, um, and I don't want to spoil too much the film to the people that didn't see it, but like I, I feel like the pitcher, like uh, you know, a lot of people didn't know what was going on at the time. Like you mentioned, uh, May threw the ball to first base. Was there any like fan testimony, or I guess anything you read either from the book of like did the fans really know what was going on at the time? And I, I guess like how kind of traumatizing that would be to see someone like die right in front of them, them like that. Yeah, I think there's. I think there's three factors that we could have done a deeper dive into, which I have interviews and talking about it. There's three factors that really play a part of this story. One is healthcare. Healthcare in 1920 is terrible. So for people to see someone go down, they knew it was a serious injury, but it was in that climate and time period of like, he'll be okay. He's a tough guy. He'll just be okay. And like, that would not be the norm today, even for the, toughest guy on any kind of sport there'd be medical treatment from ice packs to making sure there's like around the clock kind of things 1920 that just that just wasn't the case so that's one two there's a lot of people who spoke in testimonial uh, about how loud the the ball was hitting off his head yeah um babe ruth i think it was ruth who said it sounded like a metal pole like with a bing like he said it's so loud and the umpire was shocked. I know the umpire said it was just shocking because, like, you just saw a man falling down and he was bleeding. I mean, it was just very, very tragic. People don't know. Chapman collapsed at home plate and he started bleeding from his ears. I mean, that's, that's bad. Right. I mean, that's as pretty bad as it gets. So definitely glory. Uh, but I think the third thing is there was that aspect in baseball that is a dangerous game. It was almost to be like if there's a lion tamer in the circus and got eaten by the lion. Well, it's a lion. I mean, it's kind of like what you're, that's why you go see the thrill of that stuff. Baseball, sadly, was a game of, it wasn't exactly what, it's not even, 
I mean, they have netting now. I mean, there's so many things that just change the game. There's an aspect of danger. That's why a lot of people want to go watch these games because it was a thrill. It was dangerous. So I think those three factors need to be accounted for what happened here. It was not the best health care in 1920, clearly. Um, there was an aspect of like how horrible it was. There's loud moments. Everybody knew it was bad. But he's tough. They'll rub it off. They'll figure it out. And, and I think, you know, again, the last one of like, I just don't think people realized in that time period how it was a dangerous game. Like um, Randy Roberts, who's a wonderful professor at Purdue, um, really talks about it. It was a very dangerous game, really up until the Ruth era where people got serious injuries. I mean, Ty Cobb bragged about spiking people. I mean, that, that's what kind of game it was in the early 1910s, mid-1910s into the 1920s. Do you think, I mean, were you, you surprised at all that they didn't go to the batting helmets uh, sooner? Um, just, or do you think that's just kind of... I, I, I am and I'm not. You cover the game. Baseball can take a long time to change. Yeah. And baseball is is a is the one sport. It's I well, I could do a whole thing on this. I think baseball. I'm so happy for some of the changes in baseball. So I think it really needs to happen for the fans. I think it's going to create more excitement. Baseball loves tradition, and there's a great thing about that in baseball. And in fact, we talk about it poetically with Leslie Visser and others at the top of the film. And it's one of the great. I love baseball. Is my favorite sport to watch. I love baseball. It's a fantastic sport. The other thing about that, though, is it makes it sometimes where things don't change much. Baseball has a long history of not changing things until it's absolutely necessary to. 1920, you started seeing some changes because it was absolutely necessary. Someone died. I mean, they started getting to the point where owners weren't so cheap about baseballs. They would get very upset when baseballs would get hit out. So I'd bring that back. Like, like we need right. that ball. Like, we're going to play the game. That's why it's so, so dirty like, when you just throw the pitch then, too, I'm guessing. <laughs> right. Correct. Well, the ball was very dirty. It was gone. I mean, people don't realize 1920, there's probably only like 10 balls being used. God, today, that might be an inning. Yeah. I mean, so think, so think about that. So baseball, there's a lot of charm to it. It's a wonderful game. It does at times move very slow to change. And I think this isn't one of those cases, but when it does, it changes rapidly, right? So um, it did change for baseball stuff, but I hate to say it, in my study of baseball, my surprise batting helmets didn't really get used until later in the mid 20th century. No, that's about what baseball does, to be honest with you. Uh, last couple questions here, real quick. Tris Speaker, as a Guardian saying, was that the best pickup in, in uh, Cleveland baseball history? If you are a true Guardians fan, as about I say, tribe. Yeah. Guardians. Gardos. Gardos. I like Gardos. Gardos fan. The best trade was not Andrew Miller, even though it was a fantastic trade in 2016. <laughs> There's been other. You could argue today the Lindor trade for Jimenez. If Rosario, wonderful trade. Oh my gosh. The Joe Carter trade changed your organization. The best trade, uh, Kenny Lofton, that was a trade like basically for a bag of balls to Houston. Um, the best trade ever happened, though, for the Indians was Tris Speaker. It changed the organization forever. Uh, people always talk about the Babe Ruth trade, and they should. The Red Sox made two deals for cash one of those Babe Ruth, the other one was for Tris Speaker. Speaker was traded for cash. The owner was really hurting for money, and I think it was nineteen. It was either nineteen seventeen or nineteen eighteen. I always mix them up, but they that was his first time he's really starting to hurt for money, and he traded Tres Speaker for cash, and that is the biggest trade 
that's ever happened in the history. It changed the organization and it put the Indians over the top, who were always competing with the White Sox at that point to win the AL, and it really put them up. It really put them above, and really started competing them on that level. All right, finally, where can people find it? Uh, when's it coming out? Check out Apple. Check out Amazon. One of the diamond. If you got any kind of video demand products, so you got Xfinity, you got Comcast, video on demand. But Amazon and Apple are always the easiest. If you need more information, go to WarOnTheDiamond.com. WarOnTheDiamond.com has all the information you need. And if you want, and again, like there'll be tons of information too at Official Cleveland Sports on Instagram. I'm there every night after every Cavs game, Browns game, Guardians game. I'll tell. I always talk about my films and always, you know, sip a cup of coffee. Last night was kind of tough with the Clippers, but we always there talking, you know, living in our sports fandom. So Apple, Amazon, Warren the Diamonds. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Andrew Billman, everyone. If you're a baseball fan, a Yankees fan, Guardians fan, just a fan of history in general, check it out. It will be worth your time. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, and I've never been more happier to look at Michael Jordan behind you. So I hate Michael Jordan. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> yeah, it's uh, strategic for the White Sox uh, getting their asses handed to them by you guys all year. <laughs> uh, well, as a fan – who watched all the games, um, that Naylor game changed the whole projection oh, yeah. of the season. I thought. I thought the air went out of the balloon from the White Sox in that moment. And the uh, White Sox, who clearly had more talent, just made air. I've never seen a team make so many errors. They just made so many errors. And that third baseman, um, you know, the, the series where the Guardians and White Sox are still in it, um, no. Uh, by the way, that extra inning game was thrilling. Oh, yeah, it's great. I actually thought the Guardians were going to lose that game, game one of that series. I thought the Guardians were going to lose. Once they tied but it up in the ninth, I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> when, they, when they tied it in the tenth, it's like, fuck, like, we're not going to get out of this. Right. Um, but that third baseman, when he made that error, I was like, he, and he made several errors against the Indians this year. I'm like, God, they just cannot play clean baseball. Yeah. It just was, uh, it just never. I, I feel for you guys in a way because you guys were definitely more talented team, definitely more ready, and um, I just was mystified. I, I mean, you tell me, you follow the team. I just thought they there's always errors. There's just errors that are just yeah. not just like little things, but like backbreakers. And it's like, oh my gosh, like. I think the difference is when you got Terry Francona as your manager, you don't make a lot of mistakes, and they always played hard. And the White Sox is the complete opposite. Sloppy, there's times where they take nights off, and it built up because all of a sudden you got to flip the switch, and it's hard. So I think that's probably the difference. Ozzie Gann had a great post-game moment after one of those games the Guardians. I thought he was right. You just touched upon it. You're right. I mean, it's just – if I were a White Sox fan, I'd be furious. That that team was so talented. Yeah. It wasn't even comparable. It wasn't comparable. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like you'd watch these games, and um, I will say this in fairness to my team: um, the Indians and Guardians for recent years with Francona have had the White Sox number. Yeah, even in 2020, we beat them in a big series, um, and that was the year where Jay Ram and Anderson were competing for the MVP. And I thought Jose outplayed them in, that, in those three games in Cleveland. They always have had their number, but the White Sox are too talented. Uh, you know what the best thing is? I can't stand the Tigers. And A.J. Hinch yeah. made a shitty comment about the Guardians early in the year. <laughs> I just love watching them. Yeah. Just be, uh, not a fan of A.J. Hinch. Uh, you and me both. And Javi Baez is a cub from across town. Uh, not, yeah, well, I agree. 
Uh, just it was wonder that, and I, I don't get me wrong. I don't dislike the twins, but the twins were so cocky. Just to see them shut up, that was fun. Yeah, I will say no. like that. that was, totally agree. Just, yeah, I, I could do a big story of like they drove me crazy. So I worked at ESPN for sixteen years, and I never there'd be all these Yankee fans. Oh, I'm worried about the twins. I'm like. Ugh. They can't beat you in a big spot. Yeah. <laughs> and they had Mauer and Morneau and Santana. And it's like, oh, these guys <laughs> just Fuck. can't do it. Right. So, yeah. Well, anyways, you're going to talk baseball. I'm here. And your name is Mitch? Yep. Mitch, it was really nice meeting you. I apologize. I probably have to run because I had people calling me. So I <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. I, I really appreciate it. Have a good one, buddy. Have a good one.